Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everybody. My name is Ben Smith. I'm happy to have you all here today. I'm joined by my colleague, the Paul Pierce to my Antoine Walker, Curtis Wister. How are you doing today, Curtis? I'm well, Ben. How are you? I'm doing really well. We have a really uh, excellent guest here today. We work with lots of different investment providers across our footprint at Guidance Point, and one that just uh, resonates with us uh, in lots of different realms has been Vanguard. And uh, we, we've been talking to Vanguard a lot about this podcast that we're doing and our relationship manager, Kelly Orr, uh, and her internal Najiri Kamani. We've been talking to them about this idea of financial advisors. What are their roles? Um, what Where's some thinking behind them? And Kelly has been saying, geez, you got to talk to my colleague, Mike DeJoseph. Mike uh, is one of the leading experts at Vanguard on this topic and how people and the public are using financial advisors, mm-hmm. how they should be using advisors. And we recently had a really great conversation with Charlie Dibner. Yeah. Right. And Charlie kind of has this whole conversation about the evolution of financial advice, how it's impacted him personally. We talked about that and how it's impacted us. Right. But what's pretty fun about our conversation with Mike today is that Mike was one of the writers of this uh, uh, very big uh, thought leader pieces advisors alpha. And as we were kind of, we've been shaping our firm guidance point advisors, a lot of the things that Mike and his team were writing in that thought leadership piece, we've taken to heart and we've been building our firm around. Yep. So just the opportunity to have Mike on the, on the podcast today was something we just had to jump at and talk about the role of a financial advisor and how retirees and the public should be using a financial advisor and then how, how that will evolve over time. So Mike, I want to welcome you to the show today. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ben and Curtis, for having me. And I will say you guys did not prep me uh, as a Sixers fan to expect a Celtic <laughs> opening. So, uh, but, you know, you said some nice things, so I think I'll hang around. <laughs> okay. Appreciate that. Well, and, and you know, uh, the Sixers are still waiting for their chance, right? So you got a good uh-huh. team this year, but the Celtics are, are in there too. So we'll we'll just agree to disagree on the basketball front, right? Mike, what, what I'd love to do is maybe just first, if you could just explain your role at Vanguard. Uh, again, we gave a little bit of a plug for you there in terms of uh, uh, some of the research that we really have reacted to and, and really loved. But could you just talk about your role at Vanguard today and, and how it's just evolved over the time here? Sure thing. So, um, so I actually just moved into a new role uh, within the last month or so, and uh, and, be, and before that, it would probably be easier to explain if I explain where I came. Sure, please. Uh, from. <laughs> And so I spent most of the last decade um, in what's called Vanguard's Investment Strategy Group. And so that's the group at Vanguard tasked with answering the question, what does Vanguard think? Whether it's about the markets, the economy, um, you know, retirement income, or in the case of Advisors Alpha, what do we think about the advice industry and best practices for advice and, um, you know, how advisors can help align their clients with their business and things like that. 
And so I was an investment strategist group in that team responsible for writing research papers, doing analysis, going out uh, within the industry and kind of talking to people and, and articulating that thought leadership that we've created. Um, and I focused primarily on this advisor's alpha topic, but also spent quite a bit of time working on retirement income research, spent about a year working on the macroeconomics team and, and a number of other items as well, mostly related to portfolio construction and advice. And so within the past month or so, uh, I actually moved over into our financial advisor services department. And I'm kind of being asked to take on a little bit of a unique role, and that is to bring uh, those topics that I've worked on over in the investment strategy group uh, into life. So kind of how can we operationalize that, whether it's through content, uh, so looking at evolving content, working with the marketing organizations here uh, around Advisors Alpha, and, and how can we help better serve advisors? Um, you know, we at Vanguard talk about being the advisor to the advisor, uh, right? How can we help you help better serve you? Is it through service offers, uh, potentially looking at technology solutions as well? Um, so I kind of talk about it as far as creating and articulating the thought leadership and methodology of Vanguard to now bringing it to life. Gotcha. Um, really excited to be over here. Nice. Well, congratulations on the on that move. That sounds like a really fun, you know, to actually not only just think about things and have the academic side, but then actually start implementing those thoughts and, and pushing that out to to actually make change, right? Is actualizing change is a really tough thing to, to accomplish. And kudos to you to kind of take that on. You and I have talked a little bit offline previously, and I think the, the audience would really love to hear your background story in terms of, uh, obviously, you, you're you you went to Villanova, I know, but can you talk about, well, kind of your academic background, where you're from, but also then into the career path of finance and how it led you over to Vanguard? Sure, sure. Um, so I'll take a, a, a giant step back, actually. So when Please. I was really young, I was I was really close and continue to be. I'm, I'm blessed enough to, uh, my, my grandparents are still alive. Um, and I was really close with my grandfather who was a business owner and he owned a, a restaurant and bar and a place that did, you know, catering for weddings and things like that. And I just really grew up, spent most of my youth there, um, helping him. And, uh, you know, part of that was just helping him with the business aspect of it. And I just got totally obsessed with business and entrepreneurship, um, loved helping him with the numbers and all of those things. And, um, at an early age, you know, I was really into the stock market game and, and, and things that, you know, most 10-year-olds aren't really all that into. Sure. So there was never a doubt in my mind. Even going into high school, there was no doubt in my mind that I was doing business. Uh, when I got to college, I didn't know a whole lot about the business, obviously. Yep. And so I actually grew up down in southern New Jersey, down at the beach. Um, I'm from Ocean City, New Jersey. Okay. And uh, so went about an hour and a half away at Villanova and majored in finance. You know, Villanova being the wonderful Augustinian, well-rounded educational institution it is. Yep. You know, we had a, a very robust core curriculum around things like philosophy and psychology. And, you know, I think I ended up with this this really technology forward and data forward finance education kind of melded with uh, a bit of the psychology and kind of the, the different way of thinking about things, um, kind of like strategic thinking. And so actually, when I got out of college, I took a role uh, with an advisory firm. Um, so I actually entered the advice industry directly out of college. And uh, I spent about a year there. And I, I, you know, I realized it wasn't really for me. Um, and, you know, so I remember being the first year and, you know, we're at our Christmas party and, you know, everyone's talking about how much money did we make this year and, you know, uh, what have you. And I just really kept thinking, you know, I, I want to be at a place where I'm making money for clients, not off clients. And it's not to say that, you know, anyone was doing anything wrong there. It was, full, it was a firm full of great people. Yep. Um, I just, unfortunately, I just knew about Vanguard, right? And kind of feeling that way and just knowing about Vanguard and how it's client owned and completely client centric. Um, I just felt like it was a place that I had to be. And I, 
I really tried hard to get myself into the door at Vanguard, which I was I was fortunate enough to do uh, before the financial crisis. And you know, Vanguard was a different place then too. We were much smaller, sure, much more retail focused, right? We didn't have a, a whole lot of ties in the advice world and things like that. But I knew they were trying to go in that direction, and I thought it would be something um, that I would like to be part of, uh, taking what I learned as an advisor, um, you know, the do's and the don'ts, and kind of applying that to a bigger organization that's actually going to be working with advisors. And, and I know you just kind of touched on that a little bit in terms of being at that Christmas party and not feeling the culture, right? Is that there's just something that was was yeah. amiss. Can you just, you know, talk about just that environment of what what things were they engaging in that, that just didn't align with what you were kind of, what were your career path you wanted to go? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple things. I mean, culture-wise, and, and this was a broader shift in the industry that's really happened over the past decade plus, uh, past 15 years. It's just the shift from kind of the transaction-based financial advice delivery to one that's more of a holistic wealth management. Um, so if you kind of think back on the history of the financial advisor, if you will, is really the stockbroker yep. effectively, mm, right? I mean, yeah. there wasn't a, an advisor giving you retirement advice necessarily. I mean, there were some, but most of the revenue, most of the headcount in the industry was really or just we're, we're a stockbroker for you. You call us up, we'll buy and sell the stocks that you want, individual securities. And then you kind of saw it shift in the late 90s, early 2000s with the uh, the discount brokerage platforms where you know folks uh, like you and I could go on and we could buy and sell stocks online at the click of a button, which you, you better believe I was doing in college. Sure. <laughs> um, not very not very well, I'll tell you that, uh, unfortunately. But, but, um, but Mike, in, know, terms of, the, in, in terms of that, sorry to interrupt there for a second, but in regards to the that kind of that stock picking part, is there was this you know the the philosophy too is not only would would you just take the order but there's sometimes of selling the idea of a stock right is that that was yep. that, that was a lot of that was happening too is well we also have inside baseball research we know that you know there's a certain position that we think is going to do well we're going to talk to you the end client on why you should buy this as well as kind of what's happening there too yeah exactly and what we actually found out after the fact was that a lot of those recommendations were being driven by a banking relationship right right so if you're a you're a technology company company that wants to go public, you'll go to Bank XYZ and say, hey, I want you to take me public. And one of their selling points for why you should hire them to be the IPO provider was that they have a retail broker. Uh, force, right? So they say, hey, they'll push we your take stock. you public, right. we'll, have a, we'll have a broker force that will go push your stock, whether it was a good stock or not. I mean, kind of irrelevant in that it's still a conflict of interest. It could be the best investment in the whole entire world. Um, there wasn't a lot of transparency, wasn't a lot of disclosure. And, and you're exactly right. There was order taking, but there was a lot of selling as well. And, and that's where, in a, you know, to kind of parallel to your story there is, you know, uh, me getting into the industry in the early 2000s. That's one thing that I I don't know, watching some of the movies that, that were out at that time, like Boiler Room, and of course, people would watch Wall Street and, and those sorts of things. And, and you go, I know that those are celebrated cultures still. And I, I just looked at that and go, man, that feels like the antithesis of what I'm about as a person. It is, you know, trying to help people and trying to really think about them. And in this whole, we're celebrating making money off of our clients and getting all this well. So, you know, hearing your Christmas party story that you, that you talked about, um, that was something that I, th- I think going into it after school for me was something like, that's exactly where I do not want to be. And I knew it. Mm-hmm. And I just want to. So that that's what led me to the bank trust world was was for that. It's the only place I could go. I felt that got that we're not selling those sorts of uh, situations. 
Yep, no, that's exactly right. And then uh, kind of what we saw after the tech bubble was then it turned into, well, you know, it's really hard to buy and sell individual securities on your own. You know, not everyone can just, you know, quit their teaching job, for example, or, you know, people had these fabulous jobs that they were just quitting from and going and becoming professional day traders on online. And, you know, it was hard not to make money when everything was just going up, you know, seemingly without end, but then it kind of all came crashing down. And in my mind, that led to the advent of what I'll kind of term the, the star manager error. Yep. Right. So you would go to the big mutual fund companies, the big, you know, investment managers, the asset managers, and they would hire, you know, the Peter Lynch's of the world. That's right. right? Yeah. Say, hey, yep. this this guy's a genius. He's going to pick the stocks for you. And oh my goodness, you know, for the for the low price of one or two percent per year, you'll get the access to you know the greatest stock picker ever, and you get to partake in those gains. And you know, and then similarly, that was a lot of what the financial industry, uh, as far as advice, was doing. And, and again, I'm generalizing, right? There yeah, were sure. people um, that were out there doing planning all along. It just, there wasn't a lot of holistic planners that were doing the investments and the other stuff like we see today. And so, you know, the firm that I was working for was, was, was still in that model, right? I mean, we're, we're picking, doing due diligence. A lot of my first job was doing due diligence on investment managers and, and, and they're good, right? I mean, they were, they were good. There are plenty of really talented investment managers out there that are delivering performance, but the reality is it's only one small part of what clients need. And so when you see uh, the celebration of, Hey, we're making a ton of money uh, for our team uh, by selling our clients' products, whether we're doing good for them or not. And, you know, largely we were doing good for them because the, the, the products were pretty good. But they're not really thinking through, hey, you know, if it was in my mind, looking back on it today, I think what I would have needed to have seen to say, hey, I'm in the right place now, it would be probably what your party looks like. Your clients are probably there, right? Yep. And you're, and yep. if, if not, I guess you're going to have to invite them now that I said that. <laughs> um, but, you know, they'd be saying, hey, I helped client XYZ meet three goals, three of their five goals. That's right. Uh, we wanted to meet this year. We were on track for, and I I made my client this amount of money. Not I made my I made this amount of money from my client. Uh, I think that's really how the industry has evolved, though. Especially um, you kind of look at the tech bubble as a big inflection point. I think the financial crisis was another really big inflection point where people largely lost trust in the industry and kind of lost trust in the expertise of these managers who they'd put so much faith and so much doc, uh, pardon the pun, into uh, during that time, and it, you know kind of all came crumbling down and. And you started to see people say, hey, I need something else here. I need to plan for if this happens again. Um, you see an aging population where the baby boomers are retiring. And, you know, it's not enough to just figure out what funds do I put my money in. It's okay. Well, how do I spend it? Uh, how do I minimize my taxes? How do I prevent, you know, spectacular losses during a financial crisis if that were to happen again? How do I even prepare for those things? Uh, that's just one small part of it. Mm, nice. So, Mike, could you go through um, kind of one little thing? And I want to make sure that because I, I think with the public out there and a lot of the clients we have is Vanguard is a pretty household name. I, I think most people, in terms of brand awareness, I think if you ask people, have you heard of Vanguard before? You know, it's one of those fun companies that, that people have heard of and they see in, a lot in their, you know, their 401k plans or they may own it, uh, different uh, strategies or ways uh, throughout their investment footprint. But for me in the industry, I think this is something where how Vanguard is formed and you, you referenced it a little bit about being client owned. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about being client owned, what that means and how is that different than maybe what you would see with, with other fund companies um, out there in the world today? Sure. And, uh, you know, 
saying that it's a household name that's music to my family's ears, given that my <laughs> wife actually works in marketing here at Vanguard. There you go. Uh, right. And advertising, so she will love to hear that. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll start with this because I don't want anything I say to be misconstrued as sure. our way is better or somebody else is doing something wrong because they're not structured like us. But, I mean, you can structure a company in a number of ways. There can be public companies. Um, there can be private companies. Or in Vanguard's case, we are client-owned. And it's, there's some nuances here. So at the highest level, effectively, our funds at Vanguard, more or less individual companies on their own, and then they hire the Vanguard group to manage them at cost, right? So whatever, so, you know, Vanguard group will manage, will administrate, will do the client services, we, you know, the real estate, will build the technology, all of that. Um, and whatever it costs us to do that, that's what we charge the funds. And so to the extent that there's anything left over, uh, we give it back to the funds and then it re gets returned to the shareholders as a dividend in the form of lower expenses. Um, and so there's kind of this misnomer I've heard out there that people say, well, Vanguard's a not-for-profit or we're certainly not a charitable organization and we're not a not-for-profit either. We're a, a fiercely for-profit company. It's just the biggest distinction between our structure and those of uh, a lot of other companies in most industries, frankly, not just our company, is where the profits go. So in our case, they go back to our client owners, back to our funds. So if our, say, expense ratio is 10 basis points in a fund, so one-tenth of 1%, and turns out that it only took us, uh, you know, eight basis points to run the fund that year, uh, we actually give the two basis points back. And that's how we've been able to lower our fund expenses throughout literally the entire history of our company company. And then, you know, comparatively, you have another company. So if you're a public company, you take those profits and then you have to distribute them to your shareholders right. uh, of the public company, meaning those folks who own the stock of your company, whether it's in the form of dividends, right. uh, buybacks, or retained earnings that you then grow into the business to make it more profitable. Or, you know, thirdly, a uh, private company, whether it's, you know, a family, a private equity, whatever it may be, those profits go back to whoever that owner is, whether it's public or not. And, and we just don't have to do that. And so um, the thing is everything we do uh, is fiercely focused on you know delivering that profit and delivering the service to our client. We don't have another we don't have another master to serve, right? It's not if we lower our expenses and that's less money for our shareholders, and they'll only let us do that to the extent that it doesn't hurt their equity value, right? For us, we can keep on doing it, and everyone's happy because everyone's interests are perfectly aligned, right? And and I think that's what we've experienced with other other companies is you know and sometimes you see things in terms of prices that are uh, could be too good to be true, right? Is some things are, you know, they're, you know, and I, I don't want to use the, the, the free word, right? Because free is a, a very bad word in the industry as well. But uh, sometimes you th see things that are at a cost that maybe is way below what you think it should be, or, or it's very notable. And sometimes with, with certain companies, they can they can have loss leaders in one area to make profit in another. And what I've appreciated about Vanguard and, and our relationship over time is the products are, they're competitively priced. Also, when, when there's excess profit, that that's also leading to a cheaper product for the client over time. So it's not a kind of, it has this uh, Robin Hood type effect where everybody is profiting from uh, from those products doing well, which I, which again, I, I applaud. I want to rotate you over, Mike, in terms of the Advisors Alpha research. And I would love for you just to define and explain what the Advisors Alpha project is and Obviously, people know what a financial advisor is, and you know they're they're kind of tuning on into us as well as as advisors. But I'd love for you to explain the concept of alpha as well. I know that's maybe some industry jargon, and what does that mean, and how, what was your research about, and what did you find within the uh, the advisors alpha project? 
All right, I love it. I could talk about this stuff all day long. Okay. <laughs> so, part of part of my DNA. I mean, it's really driven. You know, everything. It's driven my purpose in my career, and it's just been uh, you know an absolute privilege to work on this stuff and to meet folks like yourselves over the years. Um, but so the advisors alpha topic, and let's define alpha, I guess, right? So yeah, how please. do we how do we kind of coin that phrase? So alpha, as it's traditionally defined in the investment industry, is uh, outperformance over a benchmark. So what does that mean? Well, you can buy an index fund, meaning you can buy the S&P 500 and you'll get all 500, all 500 stocks in the index um, in the weight that the index says that you should own them and you will receive the market return, right? If that's what you define the market as, the S&P 500, you get exactly the market return. That's right. The, the second you deviate, uh, whether it's in a different number of stocks, it's more or less than or a different 500 or different weighting of those 500 names, you are taking what's called an active bet versus that, uh, versus that benchmark, and you're going to get a different return than the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you do that, whether you do it by a little or do it by a lot, you'll get a, a little different return or potentially a lot different return to the extent that you get a better return than that market, than that index. So if you say buy your, your favorite 100 names out of the S&P 500 and create your own little active portfolio, if you do better than the S&P 500, that difference is called alpha. So it's effectively uh, the, the value that you've created in investment returns over and above uh, the benchmark that you've chosen. Got it. Great. Right? Yes. That's how we talk about alpha. That's very much focused on investments. You know, hard to do, hard to pick people who can find it, especially after taxes, whatever. And, and, um, and Mike, I'll, I'll pause you there for one second, too, because in terms of my history, as I was getting into the industry, it sounds like when you were starting too, really the whole premise about, hey, you're hiring us as a firm to go do what you just said, and that we're going to provide you outperformance in the, and again, another term of that is alpha. So it seems like a lot of the industry was just focused in on the, the benefit to the client at the end of the day is we're going to achieve this outperformance. Absolutely. And uh, and I'll say it's still extremely important. Um, Vanguard is a, you know, I think most people think of us as an indexing uh, shop, but a, a huge portion of our assets are actively managed as well. We certainly believe in the value of active management and uh, we believe that there's skill out there in the market. So sure. nothing that we talk about today in terms of Advisors Alpha is saying this stuff's not important because it's extremely important. Uh, what Advisors Alpha is is saying that there's another form of alpha that's more controllable, that's just as, if not more important. And that's the advisor. Alpha. And so the way that we could define that, so qualitatively, uh, we'll say it's the value that an advisor adds to the outcomes of the client. That's not necessarily investments, although it can include that, right? So, you know, when you talk about quantifying it, and I know we'll get into that a little bit more later, but yes. we kind of think about it as if you could just take the average experience out there in the industry, whether it's, you know, a, a client without an advisor or even a client with an advisor, you know, what's their experience look like? You know, what kind of planning do they have? You know, what's their tax situation? You know, how are they drawing down assets in retirement potentially? How are they invested? What kind of traditional alpha are they getting? And then we say, hey, if you did things kind of by this set of principles we call advisors alpha, you know, what would you get then? And what's the difference? And that's the advisors alpha. And what, um, yeah. And what I loved about kind of what you, what you kind of went through with the research project, and again, we'll kind of dig in a little bit more deeply here in terms of the seven items that you, you identified, but can you talk about, well, obviously you had that career background in the financial services industry and thinking about that one, that, that first job and that year there driving you to this point. Can you talk about the, that root kind of kernel in terms of the idea at Vanguard of, hey, how do we go about even identifying an advisor who's working with a client and that benefit that they provide to them, right, is, is actually put a, try to put a 
quantifying result on that. How did how did that come up as an idea? Yeah, it came up as a as we listened to our clients, right? So the advisors alpha concept. You know, we talked a little bit about how the industry started to shift after the tech bubble and certainly after the financial crisis. Well, you know, Vanguard made a strategic decision sometime during that period as well that we should be, we should really be uh, working closer and actually partnering with intermediaries. So the advice industry themselves. Okay. I mean, Vanguard has offered financial advice. Uh, you could come to Vanguard. You know, I think people hear a lot about our kind of robo-advisor and the hybrid advisor we have now, but we've actually been doing advice for, you know, 25 years almost here. And we realized, hey, you know, there are a ton of really good advisors out there that we think that we could help in a way that's other than just providing them high quality, low cost products. And that was this advisor's alpha. So we started talking about it with them and saying, hey, you know, as the value proposition of being an advisor is shifting from stockbroker to fund picker to holistic wealth manager, you know, we actually have some thoughts on it because we've made that shift ourselves. So we've, we've always been really transparent about what we're doing and kind of what our methodology is, how we tell our story and what our value proposition is. And this is exactly where advisor's alpha came from. But what we heard is that, you know, I get it. I, you know, I'm an advisor. I know that I need to evolve my practice. I need to evolve the way I'm telling my story, evolve my service offer. Uh, specifically, what? How do I talk about it? And, and how do I, you know, how do I justify charging for it when it's something that's not easy to measure? And so that's really where the idea came about. It's is from folks like yourselves that said, can you help us measure this yeah. uh, so that we can understand it and we can tell that story? Yeah. And and I'll say, and I, I know I led the show with this. I, I do want to kind of go back and just tell my personal story with that. Is that. I came from a my previous uh, career stop and we were a uh, large cap value picking uh, stock strategy. So a lot of my kind of experience and where I was in my career. And again, I, I got this uh, chartered financial analyst designation, which I know you have as well, Mike, was around, hey, I, I, I really think my place is in this career is around picking stocks. And what I looked internally when I had asked the question of, am I doing a good job? Right? How much is it did I actually perform what I came in here to do? And ask really honestly asking yourself that, right? That's a, which is a really tough thing to take stock and, you know, really reflect. Kelly prevented, uh, pre- presented me, Kelly Orr, who I re- referenced earlier uh, from Vanguard, our, our relationship manager rep. She presented me with your research and she's like, Hey, hey, here's the things that if, if you're focusing on these things, here's what also we can actually show helps your clients the most. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a, a really thunderbolt moment for me of, Hey, here's what you're starting down a path of, is this the best use of your time to make the most and maximized impact to your clients? And I started reading that paper and I I, th- I shared it with uh, the team and we all went through it and we t- discussed it probably for years. <laughs> and and we started to organize our firm around these tenants. So I want that, which is why I, so I, you know, I want to give that feedback back to you of, and even doing it on this forum of, hey, this is really important leadership of here's some things to be thinking about. And it asked, it allowed us to ask really hard questions yeah. about auditing our own time and what client impact are you having with that time? How many people can you serve? What life-changing things are you helping them with? All of those things. And, and that's where um, I, I want to just kind of give you that plug all the way through because I, I think in your research, I, I think there's things that you were highlighting that people are that should be doing, but also things that they shouldn't be doing. So could you maybe go through those? There's seven items that you talk about in the research that advisors should be focusing on that you think provide that alpha, that extra impact to clients, but also maybe some things that are common in the industry that people are doing or advisors are doing that maybe 
don't uh, provide that value. Because again, the the show we're trying to build today is, hey, if I'm a retiree and I'm thinking about using a financial advisor and I'm interviewing one that might be a match for me, how should I be asking what sort of things are they doing for me that give me the most benefit? Yep. Well, uh, I'll start with thank you for the kind feedback. Um, like I said, there are a lot of people here in this organization that have a lot of their heart and soul uh, in this work. And, yeah. you know, we just, we so believe in what you all do as advisors and, you know, what we do as advisors and just the, just the evidence is so overwhelming of, of the fact that advice is valuable. And when you actually take a step back, which, which again, like, you know, not to harp on it, but it's kind of Vanguard's, Vanguard's structure allows us to do this where we can actually think through, hey, we only have one person that we're accountable to, and that's that end investor. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you start thinking about, hey, by helping advisors understand how to be better advisors and understand what's important and what's valuable, we're affecting the lives of, of actual individuals like ourselves, like our own families. Uh, and, it, and it's really rewarding. I, my, uh, my former boss until a, a month or two ago, uh, Fran Canary, who's actually the one who coined the term uh, Advisors Alpha here at Vanguard uh, roughly 20 years ago now, um, you know, he frequently, like every month, he would send around this video from Simon Sinek yeah. uh, to start with your why. And That's he would right. always say, remember, remember why you're doing it today, not what you're doing. You're not coming in and writing a research paper and, you know, plugging numbers into an Excel sheet. You are, you know, affecting an industry so that the outcomes of millions of individual investors might be marginally better. Um, and it's it's really powerful stuff uh, that informs it. So, you know, uh, it's a long-winded way saying thank you yeah and and to that point of well again what's our why right is hey i'm sitting down with a group of people in you know in maine in new england and other places and you sit down with them and you think about them and, and you go, why are they hiring you? And their why is something that you need to take personally and go, all right, what I owe it to them. They're, yeah. they're giving, they're entrusting all of their wealth to you. Mm. How there's no probably high, well, there's probably a few other higher responsibilities, but it's one of the <laughs> biggest highest responsibilities that you could probably find out there of here's all my financial resources in the world. And I'm trying, I'm, and I'm make, I want to make this money last for the entirety of my life and my spouses and there's all these goals that I have and your job is to help them the best way you, you possibly can. So that's where, again, the, this study that you have here is really uh, impactful. So thank you for, uh, I know we're saying thank you back and forth, but that, that's really, <laughs> is really helpful for us. Um, so that, can, can, that's right. Yeah. So Mike, can you really go through in terms of just kind of, kind of covering the seven items? Like what sort of things should advisors do that in your research uh, impacts clients the most? Sure. Yeah. So I'll cover them. But before I cover them, a couple of disclaimers. Please. Um, you know, A, that research has evolved quite a bit since we first put it out, so much so that we actually had to put out a whole entire version of Advisors Alpha afterwards, uh, which I think we'll get to the portfolios to people. Yep. But the original seven and, you know, the, another caveat here, like we approach this very much as more of an art than a science. So we knew that we couldn't precisely quantify these things. So it was kind of, you know, over a long period of time, you know, what are the things that an advisor would do that are important to most advisors uh, that are applicable to most clients over some period of that client advisor relationship. Um, but that was things like asset allocation. So selecting the right investments for the client. So again, we talk about advisors alpha versus regular alpha, you know, the investment stuff is important. And this doesn't mean asset allocation does not mean, am I beating the market? Am I not beating the market? Uh, that's certainly part of how you implement it. But what it's really about is understanding, um, you know, kind of the 
the way that the portfolio needs to be allocated in order to give your clients the best chance of reaching their own goals, taking into account a number of things. So, you know, we've written about this concept called required versus desired returns in the past. And it's really this thought of, if you just ask the average client, hey, what return do you want? It's, they're probably just going to say the highest. You know, if you give them, you know, do you want two, four, six, eight, or 10? They'll say, well, we want 10, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, a good advisor can go through and actually figure out, hey, what return is required uh, to give us some, you know, margin of safety that they'll actually meet their goals, right? Maybe yes. maybe they want 10, but it, but they only need four and you end up, you know, targeting six. That's part of it. And, and the other part on there, a big part of it is is risk tolerance. And so we look at it a little differently than most. I think traditionally what you'll see is, you know, you fill out a couple questions. Maybe uh, if you go even deeper, maybe you're talking to a client and you say, well, how would you feel if you have 20% less financial assets than you do today or 30% less financial assets? And you kind of get to that point where they seem to feel uncomfortable. And then you say, well, that's your risk tolerance. And we'll back into kind of the equity allocation that would correlate in the past with, you know, what that drawdown would potentially be in the future. We think that that's really not as robust of an approach as what a really good advisor is able to provide. And so I think when you guys talk to your clients, it's probably more along the lines of, okay, here's your situation today. Uh, here's the returns that you may need to reach your goals, uh, you know, again, with a margin of safety. Yep. How would you feel if, you know, instead of us saying you have a 90% chance of reaching that, reaching that goal, how would you feel if that went down to 60% or 65%? And, you know, more so, how would you feel if you lost 30% of your portfolio? Because what we know from behavioral finance is that people will actually picture themselves today, all else equal with 30% less assets. Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, well, million dollar investor, I now have $700,000. That's that's pretty bad. I wouldn't feel great about it, but okay, I think I would be able to handle it. Uh, but the reality is the path that the world would have to take to end up for them having a 30% drawdown, especially as an older investor, that's probably not 100% equities. You know, that conversation needs to be around how would you feel if you had 30% less assets and you were worried about losing your job? You know, maybe one of your, your adult children got laid off and has to move back home. Uh, maybe you have a surprise. God forbid you have a surprise uh, health scare or, or anything along those lines, right? I think it's just that deeper level. And then... Uh, understanding what that is and, and how to allocate your client's portfolio accordingly. So, you know, you get into the active, passive, alpha or not alpha. It's only one small part of asset allocation. Sure. And because it, it's giving but, context to their personal situation, right? Is right. is translating right. their personal uh, things that they're worried about, personal, uh, maybe there's things that going on in their life, but also then how, how that translate to how they should invest, which is what I like is, again, from, from this framework that you've built is, you know, leading with the client first and kind of hearing about what, what drives them, what makes them tick, uh, what are, what's important in their life, what what are their goals, and having that drive the investment strategy versus, hey, by the way, the investment strategy is this, this is what we're going to do. And if it doesn't work out, you adjust your life to us. It, or if it really works out, you can adjust your life even better. Isn't that great? Uh, so yep. I like the whole, it, it's a it's a flip of what I think what we've already talked about in the financial advice industry is that hey, we're going to invest our way and you're lucky that you're working with us because we're really good at it. And if it doesn't work out, I'm sorry, you got to adjust your life. So mm-hmm. the opposite way of, hey, you know, here's what you want to do in your life and we're, we're translating that to make it work on the investment side. Like I, I like so much better that the, the end client's in control, right? Is that they're, they're in the center mm-hmm. of it, not on the peripheral reacting to it. Yeah, no, all, all of the stuff falls under the, the purview of financial planning. Yep. 
right? So it's having a plan, and the reality is if, you know, if you have an allocation and the market draws down and the portfolio draws down 30%, I mean, that should have been part of the plan. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and, you know, let's be honest, there's no magic wand. No matter what you do, I mean, you can't can't just create new assets. You can't create new savings that the the client can't afford, but you can certainly do the best with what you're given and and ideally put together a plan that's durable through ups and downs. You know, that's what we mean about the value of asset allocation. It's so specific to the individual client. It's impossible to say, you know, what the, the specific value is. And you know, one of the you asked earlier, what's one of the difficulties I think we had with doing this and kind of, you know, where did the idea come from? This is really hard because unlike a lot of other areas in life, there are no, uh, I guess there's no data uh, effectively on what could have been. So what an economist would call a counterfactual, right? So if we say, well, we invested you in a 60-40 portfolio and, you know, 20 years later, you know, the advisor client looks back and says, here's what your result is. There's no way to really keep track or calculate what the result could have been if you had made other decisions. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's one of the reasons our industry has such a such a hard time articulating value. Whereas if you're a CPA, you could say, here's what your taxes were before you came to me and here's what they are now. Right. All right. X minus Y is the accountant's alpha. Yep. I think I just yep. coined a term. Hopefully no one takes that. <laughs> it, it'll be our secret. We won't, we won't let anybody know. Um, <laughs> can, so Mike, could you could you keep on going on here? So we've covered asset allocation. What yep. would be the next ones we should, the advisors should be focusing on? Yep. And I'll speed them up a little bit, but it's cost effective implementation. So, and that one's really simple. We just take the average expense that the average dollar invested in the industry pays yep. and compare it to what if you just moved to a lower cost? you know, cohort yep. of investments. And, and that's, you know, again, something that's core to our DNA. And it's it's something that, you know, and again, all of this advisor's alpha, it's about keeping more of what you're already earning. It's not about, you know, mm-hmm. how do we help you earn more traditional alpha? It's how do you keep what you're earning yep. through not paying too much, you know, not being poorly allocated in the first place, uh, not paying too much taxes, et cetera. And so um, lowering the costs is really important. It's something that compounds over time. It doesn't involve taking a lot of risk and it's not an active passive story. We're not saying, you know, go pass this is just, you know, if you're doing active, lower your active costs. Yep. If you're doing passive, then use the best, you know, the, the highest quality, lowest cost product that you can. Um, so there's that. And then we get into uh, a series of topics around kind of retirement drawdown and taxes. And this is really that financial planning that, that I know that you do. And that's around how do you ask, how do you locate your assets instead of how do you allocate your assets? Where do you put them? You know, what, what types of accounts do you put them in? Do you, you know, most people have a taxable registration, a 401k, certainly. And if not, they, you know, maybe have an IRA, potentially have spouses. You have two IRAs, maybe two Roth IRAs, a 401k <laughs> thrown in there, a, yes. a couple yes, taxable yes. accounts, a trust, a joint account, et cetera. And it's kind of figuring out, okay, well, we decided you're a 60-40 investor. Where the heck do we put stocks? Where the heck do we put the bonds? Yep. Uh, in a way that minimizes the taxes. And, and to quantify that, you, you really just look at the tax efficiency of the asset classes themselves. So something like taxable bonds for example, will generally get taxed at the marginal tax rate. So whatever you're paying on your income tax, that is usually going to be higher than the capital gains rate. You know, most of the time it'll be higher than the long-term capital gains rate uh, in particular. And so if you have equity funds that pay dividends that are taxed at long-term capital gains and you have fixed income that pays uh, interest, and we know most of the return to fixed income over a long period of time, at least, you know, maybe not the last decade, but it'll generally be attributable to interest payments uh, that gets taxed at a much higher rate. So maybe we, you know, quote unquote, shelter that in the tax advantage type accounts. Gotcha. So thinking through how you're doing that. And, and that stuff's really complicated. It's, it's something that the average investor 
probably doesn't know exists, nonetheless, can do on their own. And it's, you know, something that can add a tremendous amount of value, especially for folks who have all those different types of accounts and someone who maybe has a, a balance allocation where they have the different types of investments as well. And, and I'll kind of add to it, too, is one, one of the items which uh, was interesting to me is you had um, a total return versus income investing part there uh, was, yep. was, a, was a theme. And what always struck me about that is that there's this whole thinking um, that uh, a client will walk in and they have this proclivity to dividend paying things, right? So they, they, they get the, the income and it's all about the income uh, spinning off. Yeah. And they, they don't understand the total return side of that, of looking at both sides of it. So I know that that was a piece in there, but that one kind of really hit home on me was how, you know, it's a very traditional way on thinking. And I know that's been ingrained in the society for a long time, but that, that's something that I, I thought was, was pretty notable. Well, Ben, it's been ingrained in society because for most of our history, you've been able to just have a simple balanced portfolio that kicked off enough income to live off of in retirement. That's right. right? I mean, if you look before, you know, before, say, the mid-2000s, you could have, a again, a simple 60-40 stock bond portfolio that was probably kicking off 4 or 5% a year in dividends and interest. Right. Uh, and so what happened with, with lowering interest rates, uh, you know, from central banks and lower inflation and, uh, you know, whatever those reasons are over the past decade and a half, dividend yields have come down. Interest rates on bonds have certainly come down. And, and, you know, we've just kind of stuck with this rule of thumb. Well, if, you know, if my portfolio is only getting 2%, then I need to change the portfolio. So I'm getting four or five. Gotcha. Uh, and, the, you know, we've done a lot of work here. And we actually found out that, you know, regardless of the dividend yield or the, the interest payment of the, of the funds, if you look at them, if you kind of bucket, say, like by quartile, so the top 20 versus bottom 20% dividend yield on a mutual fund, uh, the total return, so the return that you actually get from holding on to the investment's pretty close, mm-hmm. regardless. Uh, and, you know, to kind of what the reason why you tied it to asset location, that's a perfect segue is because, you know, selling a portion of an appreciated mutual fund, for example, is often more tax efficient than paying the taxes on the interest payments and dividends. And so it's almost psychological. People get attached to their capital, right? They you do. get attached yeah. to your principal. Yeah. I don't want to sell any shares. You know, I have a number of shares. I don't want to sell them. But if it's a dividend, you know, it's not already invested. So I'll just take the dividend out. And, you know, we certainly say you, you should probably spend the dividends first instead of reinvesting them and then, you know, getting them them double taxed on on the return there, but instead of changing the portfolio, because the irony is you may be scared to touch your capital, but the things that it takes to actually raise the interest rate usually require taking on significant extra risk. Yes. Oftentimes unexpected risks and kind of you know uh, hidden risk. The the irony is that your capital may be at more risk from trying not to touch it than if you just spend it in the first place. Right. I would. I do want to fast forward to the last piece of the, of yep. the advisor's alpha piece because the biggest component, which what I, I've seen and again, which impacted us was the behavioral coaching. And, yep. and it's something where, you know, having... I think a lot of our podcast here is around the behavioral coaching part is is the emotional and and what are the fears and the concerns and the goal setting and the visualization that people uh, maybe struggle with and advisors that are are coming in and organizing people and really factoring in all of those emotional pieces and helping coach uh, them either through them or acknowledging them and, and working around them. Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of the role of an advisor and what is behavioral coaching that you were finding was was impactful to people? 
On behavioral coaching, we we believe that it's the biggest value that an advisor can add to a client. And, you know, we, we might get into a little bit about how the industry has evolved. And I would make the case that it's even more important today as technology has started to come in and kind of automate away some of the things that maybe an advisor had done in the past. Um, we think that's a good thing. It frees up more time for this. And so there's two ways to think about it. There's probably more. There's two that I, you know, generally talk about. And one is kind of the day-to-day, year-after-year, not chasing performance and trying to time the market as kind of a as an investment strategy so we can actually look at the returns of funds versus the returns of the average dollar invested in the fund and if you i guess the example would be let's say one of the best funds last year let's just call it was up 20% you know and had tremendous cash flow throughout the year. So, you know, on paper, it looks like, okay, this fund had 20% return. When you actually dig a little deeper into it, what you'll see is, and this is just totally hypothetical, let's say that 15 of that 20% return occurred in the first six months of the year. What we often see, uh, we see it all across the world. It's a human thing. We see it in retail investors. We see it in advisors and we see it in institutions. What you'll often see is that a bulk of the cash flow from last year probably came in in the second six months of the year. So while the fund says 20% return, the reality is that the average person or average dollar that invested in that fund in that year probably didn't get anything remotely close to the 20. And uh, the reason is, is it's it's hard not to, right? It's hard to hold on to things when there's always something doing better. And in our industry, and especially today, there is always something doing better. You know, the millennials call it FOMO. Right, yes, but right. yeah. you can you can turn on CNBC and you're seeing this company and that company and this IPO and yes. you know last year it was Bitcoin right yeah. or, or whatever it is there's always something that's doing better than what you have and there's always that temptation to chase it and say oh man well you know Bitcoin looks like it's going to whatever I better jump in now and you're going to sell something you're probably going to sell the thing that hasn't done as well that's out of favor you know generally I wouldn't say we believe in this as a rule but as kind of a rule of thumb there there's quite a bit of mean reversion in investments yep. Meaning if something does poorly today, it'll probably do better in the future and it'll kind of end at its average. And so a really good advisor is someone who can step in there and kind of mitigate those emotional decision-making moments to to say, hey, you know what? We planned for this ahead of time. Uh, We sat down. We understood your goals. We're not trying to get the highest return. We're just trying to get a return that'll help you meet your goals. That's right. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, bailing out of your diversified portfolio to invest in Bitcoin, you know, it may make you reach your goals in six months instead of 20 years. It also may make you go broke and you have zero percent chance of reaching your goals ever um you know and it's just that discipline uh we kind of call it the emotional circuit breaker which is being it, an advisor yeah because it, it's kind of this um it, systematizing the emotional part right is it yeah. it's, it's kind of taking some of the emotional out of it but it, it's also this um you know some people get really excited about there's one time in their life they may get lucky in some of these things right mm-hmm. and and that will really color their lens on hey I'm good at this, right? And they yep. they have a false sense of uh, of confidence in regards to their own abilities to do it. We had a client that um, we we were in, or a prospect that we we're interviewing, and they were interviewing our process and thinking about it. And they go, "Geez, I I can do this on my own. I can. I'm just as able to do it. I've retired, and now I have all the time in the world. And this seems like fun. And anybody can do this, right? So mm-hmm. I'll just go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. And six months later, he's like, "Yeah, I made really bad bets." Right. Is, is, you know, I, I over concentrated in things. I, in the market did all the things that we had talked about and, you know, all the things that we had talked about as a strategy to, to meet my, my goals as safely as I thought I could. Those things actually looking backwards would have worked out. And the things I did that I thought were very easy and common sense didn't work out. So it's, it was these behavioral parts of, you know, 
looking at persistence, right, is what things can we do really well and we can focus in on those and do them repeatedly over time for all clients and and what sort of things are our actual skill that we can do well versus minimizing the luck stuff. And again, we can't control externalities in the market and all that, but that that was one of the things we took away from uh from that that segment of of your uh, of your piece. That's fine. That actually reminds me of a story, and I, I promise we did not discuss this beforehand for the, <laughs> for the listeners. And I do want to I do want to come back to the second bigger piece of behavioral coaching, which is the you know the the more sporadic yes type stuff. But um you know I actually heard a story from an advisor one time who had a very similar experience. He was the advisor. The client was saying, "I don't need what you do, right? Like I I could do this myself. I'm retired. I could figure out how to do the taxes. And you know if I really devote to it, I think he was probably an engineer or you know a doctor, one of the one of the people that probably could figure out a lot of that stuff, frankly. And and the advisor, you know, kind of brings up the conversation about behavioral coaching. And it's like, hey, this stuff's hard, even for the professionals. It's so hard to do if you don't have a good process and experience and understanding. He said, nope, I could do it. So the advisor actually made the client a bet and said, I'll tell you what, why don't we slice off, you know, whatever it was, 5, 10, 20% of your portfolio. And, you know, we'll give you 12 months and I'll manage the, the rest of the portfolio the way that we set out in our policy, in our investment policy statement. You go out and actively manage the rest of it. And then And at the end of this 12 months, if you're able to beat me with your slice of the portfolio, I'll refund your fees for the year and you're free to go on your own. And I'll hire, you know, I'll, you know, kind of joking, I'll hire you as my advisor. (laughs) Right. And uh, I I think we can all imagine exactly how uh, that played out very similarly. And then, you know, talking to the advisor too, was kind of funny because the reality is like, even if, you know, even if the client did outperform, I think the, you know, the reason that they needed the behavioral coaching in the first place probably would have subsided at the end of that period anyway. Yeah. Right. Well, in, in, in that example too, Mike, is what I also find is they might be right right now, right? That that yeah. might be correct that right now they can figure all those things out, everything we talked about and all these services. There might be a day when they're not inclined to do this anymore, right? And, and they might not be able to, they might not be willing to, they might lose capacity or get sick. And what provides continuity over the entirety of their retirement? that all these things are taken care of as they have more dependency on their money or more physical needs or they slow down a little bit more, that there's more chance for them to make a mistake because that they're at a different stage of their retirement. And we had a one, we had a, a geriatric psychologist that came on, uh, Dr. Cliff Singer that came on before. And he was saying, look, there's young old and there's old old. <laughs> he goes, when you start getting to your mid seventies is when the old old kicks in and right. you start really losing mental capacity. And, and that's something that from a financial advisory perspective of, Hey, behavioral coaching, there's a need for it all across, whether you're 18 years old, I have a six-year-old, could be a six-year-old, whatever. I mean, your whole life, there's there's different needs that are happening. And and that's one of the things we've reacted to that situation you just said is yeah. right now you might be not needing it, but there might be a time over t- that we're, we're working together on it and where you're co-piloting it is you might be able to fly your own plane to Atlanta. But if you're going over Valley Forge, uh, Pennsylvania, and all of a sudden <laughs> something happens, you're, you're solo piloting and you're not able to do it, you know, that, that's a pretty scary place to be versus you have a co-pilot that's already there and working with you. So I, again, from, from that end, that's, that's what we've kind of said to it. And, and again, which is the tenets of your, of your framework there. Yeah, really well put. And I'll just kind of close out the behavioral coaching conversation with where there, there's the other aspect of it too. And I actually, um, I was up in Boston a, a month or two ago talking at an FPA event about behavioral coaching. We have this whole presentation we get on, you know, how to be, be a behavioral coach, why you need it, et cetera. And uh, they asked me to put 
put together a two-minute teaser video to get people to come to the conference with a compelling statement. And uh, I made the statement that I said that I believe that an advisor could actually pay for the full lifetime of fees between the client and advisor with a 15-minute phone call. And we have evidence of it. And I know we don't want to you know, talk about pricing in the industry and costs and things like that, but the story is kind of like this. And we actually saw it play out. We did a study at Vanguard where we saw this. And that's so let's say you're, well, we'll put numbers on it. Let's say you're a million dollar uh, portfolio investor in 2007 at the pre crisis peak. Uh, at some point during that crisis, the vast majority of people were, were certainly tempted, a, a whole lot of them did, unfortunately, bail out of that market or, or de risk or reallocate. And so we did this thought exercise and said, well, what if it was at the end? End of 2008, uh, before the market even, you know, bottomed out. What if it was in March of 2009 when it looked like? I mean, you know, we were all in the industry at the time. It literally looked like the whole entire system was going to collapse yes, and the industry I, was just going to be gone. Absolutely. I mean, it felt it felt that way every single day. There's there's no other way to put it. So we say, okay, if you're an advisor and your client calls at any point in that stretch and says, I want to bail out of the market, even if you're say a 60-40, 70-30, 50-50 portfolio investor, that seven hundred, that million dollar portfolio is probably somewhere in like the six to $800,000 range, right? Mm-hmm. You have that phone call. It could be 15 minutes of behavioral coaching that allows you to keep them invested, whether it's referring back to the plan or, yep. yeah. or ideally you had been proactive about it ahead of time, et cetera, whatever those things may be. But getting them to keep invested in the market, again, also knowing that when people bail out of the market, uh, you have to understand it's not enough to just call the buy. It's not enough enough to just know when to get out. You have to know when to get back in. That's right. You got to be right twice. Right? And, and you, you have to be right twice. And usually usually the moments when it, when the capitulation happens, when things feel the worst and people tend to bail, that's usually when the moment would have been to get in. Yes. And yeah. oftentimes, but not always, because there's tons of false positives and false negatives in this industry, but oftentimes when it feels the best, that was the time to get out. Though you never know it until retrospect. But we say, okay, well, let's do this thought exercise. If that investor had bailed uh, out of the market, even marginally, and let's just say they you know, or probably barely broken even today if they were invested in bonds or cash, uh, very likely still never broke even from their pre-crisis peak, you know, not counting new savings and whatnot, versus the investor who actually stayed invested. You're looking at probably a two or $3 million portfolio today mm-hmm. when accounting for market appreciation and reinvestments. And so, you know, when you're talking about the value of behavioral coaching, uh, you know, you can make the case that 15-minute conversation is the difference between a multiple of wealth you know, a, a matter of percents and basis points here and there. That's but, right. um, you know, yeah. I went on to make the case that that 15 minute phone call likely requires an enormous amount of upfront investment in building the relationship and building the trust uh, between a client and an advisor so that uh, you're actually able to deliver that value and that the client's actually willing to accept that coaching. And, right? and it's just like an, it's like an athlete. I mean, if you, you know, you see these star athletes go to the teams and they have a new coach, you know, there, there was an example, a very relevant example for you in the Celtics last year, right? That's right. That's right. Kyrie Irving. You have an athlete, you have a new athlete, goes to the team, you have, you know, an incredibly well-respected, by all accounts, just tremendous human being of a coach up there. And it pains me to say that, but it's true. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he just doesn't want to accept the coaching because they don't have that background. They haven't been through the trenches. They maybe haven't built the trust and whatever else it may be versus you have some of the players who have been on that team for, you know, five or six or seven years. You know, the Marcus Smarts of the world, right, where they've built that relationship. They've been through the bad times and the good times. And when it comes time for coaching opportunities, they're much more likely to actually accept it. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where, you know, I, I think when you look at, again, one of the lessons I learned during that financial crisis is, look, having that relationship allowed for all those conversations to go really well, right? Is people, were people happy about losing money during that time frame? No, but they knew going into it, what a plan would be, what their plan already was, mm-hmm. what the plan was if things went bad the way they did. 
how we were positioning ourselves to get out of it and what data we were using that were supporting what we were saying to them. And those made for, obviously, when they're coming into the meetings, they were very anxious and worried and upset. But going out of those meetings, you would hear you know things like, I feel so much better. I, you know, I, I, I understand why we did what we did, why we're, why we are where we are and what we're going to do going forward. And they, they wanted that continuity. And, and I, I think from a financial advice perspective in the industry, as we've kind of already laid out is if you have somebody that is really their relationship with their client has just been stock picking, right? It's like, well, you know, when everything is down by 50% or something, you know, there, there's not a magic stock that's going to come out of nowhere and just save you, right? Is it, 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 It's just it all. So that relationship is not going to be helpful to those situations where I, I feel like if we if we're doing our job really well, we really get some really great relationships with our clients and various levels of person personal uh, relationships there too. But it, it's this, it's a level of trust because you've talked about all the things in their life, what it means, how their money relates to it, and they understand strategy and, and going to it. Where where if it's like our only relationship is pitching you in a, a stock or here's our portfolio and here's uh, why we did well in this and not there, it's not translated and they they really have a tough time kind of understanding it. So I, I want to ask you that question there, Mike, in regards to if someone's shopping for a financial advisor based on the tenants that you said, all right, here's the things that financial advisors should be focusing on, then translating that to I'm part of the public and I'm raising my hand right now. I'm looking for a financial advisor. How would you guide them uh, in terms of finding that advisor that is focusing on those sorts of things that you've laid out in your research? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a personal story that Please. will be an analogy. So two years ago now, I guess so I was engaged to my now wife and um, <clears throat> we were doing this research that I had kind of briefly mentioned the portfolios to people and we in it, we actually tried to quantify trust and like the, the aspects of trust and it was, you know, functional and ethical and, and emotional was actually more than 50%. It was more than functional and ethical combined. You know, we were doing this deep dive into it and we had thousands and thousands of survey results and we had this firm kind of aggregate these responses into, hey, how can we find the, the tenants that drive what we called high trust, not just trust, but like how do, what were the things that drove a high level of trust? Yep. Uh, between a client and an advisor, the the kind of relationship that would allow, like you said, the advisor to be the coach when they're needed, and the kind of relationship where you know even when the market does go down, they're probably not going to fire their advisor because they didn't hire their advisor to beat the market anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and so this, this the story is so uh, to get to that point, I actually had to read through those survey results, right? and so I'm reading through these survey results during the day, and I'm seeing these things. And then uh, my wife and I were in premarital counseling through our church at the time, so at night we're going to visit our premarital marital counselors and they're talking and I'm sitting there, I'm, you know, I'm looking at her and I'm shaking my head. I'm really into it. And, you know, the wheels were obviously spinning. And I, I think my, my now wife, hopefully my wife still, after she hears this, <laughs> um, was kind of, was looking over like, oh man, he's really into this. He's going to be great. I, you know, I, I chose the winner here. He's really engaged in this whole process. But what's really going through my mind is that, my goodness, the things that I'm hearing right now are exactly the things that I'm reading during the day. That's right. And so it sounds, it might sound a little hokey, but the things that that lead to a good relationship between an advisor and client uh, are very similar uh, in a lot of ways the things that actually lead to a healthy marriage and you know it's really it all falls on the emotional side um, and it's things like active listening probably more than anything else right uh, I think too often and that's certainly been my experience having been around literally thousands of advisors yep. uh, I could honestly you know I could probably tell you in a 20-minute conversation with an advisor kind of what kind of relationships they have with their clients mm-hmm 
and, you know, what kind of services they offer because it's the ones that just want to talk and talk and talk and talk about themselves and talk about their service offer and their successes and their goals yep. uh, versus, you know, the very best advisors. And so, the you know, the explicit advice to an end investor that I would give uh, when choosing an advisor is to find an advisor who is listening to you, who is asking really good, thought-provoking, provocative questions, and who's doing it in a way that is trying to understand your why, not yeah. just your what. You know, we talked about it from our perspectives at a, at a personal level during our careers, but hey, you know, I think the standard kind of response would be, well, you're coming to me to accumulate wealth, save money, I'm going to make you money and whatever. Whereas I think the reality is the very best advisors are the ones figuring out like, what does wealth mean to you? Um, you know, why do you want to accumulate wealth, right? Like, why are you, why are you even saving today instead of just spending all your money? Like, right. what does it mean to you? That's right. What do you want to do in retirement? Is it business? Is it family? Is it legacy? Whatever those things are. Uh, so, you know, when you're interviewing an advisor, if they're not asking you why you're doing what you're doing, if they're just asking you what assets do you have? What accounts do you have? You know, how much do you want to make, et cetera? I'd say run. Yeah, because because it's at that point is the advisor's interviewing you about your assets, right? Is is the, the client is actually to the advisor is what I've kind of framed it as or think about it as is that the advisor is caring more about your money than about you. So the Christmas part story, right? I mean, they're thinking, am I going to get a vacation out of this because I'm going to get a big portfolio and they're doing the math in their head. And, and, you know, it's not fair to generalize to all, but yeah, I mean, if if the advisor is sitting there and asking, what do you want to do with the money? Like, what does wealth mean to you? What they're probably thinking through is, man, like, how am I going to plan for this? Like, you know, what kind of strategies are we going to put in place? How am I going to communicate about these goals? And, And really like, you know, to take it another step further, I would say, look for an advisor who's excited to help you reach those goals. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You want, you want to advocate. You want a partner, right? You want, you want a partner. And you know, that's when I talk to advisors about this presentation that I, that I mentioned, that's literally what I say. Say the number one thing that drives success from a business perspective of an advisor is having high trust clients. And the number one thing that drives high, high trust clients, put it, you know, bluntly is that the the client feels like the advisor actually cares about them and is almost co-invested in a sense of like their success is their success. And then obviously all the, you know, the ethical and functional uh, alignment of interests and just sheer competence to actually get the job done are kind of table stakes at this point in the industry. Yeah. Mike, I, I want to kind of switch streams in terms of, um, it's a it's a bigger question, but I want to combine two that I was thinking about here is one is in the country, right? We're an aging country, right? Is, you, is you're seeing the, the boomer generation aging and retiring and from an advisor perspective or, or people that are needing advice, I, I think there's more and more of Anecdotally, I'll, I'll say is I'm seeing more and more people wanting to use a financial advisor and thinking about that. Mm-hmm. But from a looking for a practitioner, and, and you see this during uh, through lots of trade publications, that there's a lot of financial advisors exiting the marketplace, right? That they're retiring and there's nobody or there's there's a lack of people like uh, maybe Curtis here who's next to me is people that are younger getting into this industry and learning and being mentored and, and working to kind of replace those those retirees. And in the state of Maine itself, right. we're, we're like, I think the second oldest state by, by median age, second or first. Yeah. So we were way past Florida. And, and we have this issue because we're so rural – Right is we have a population center at the bottom of the state in Portland, which is you know a, an hour and a half away from Boston, and the rest of the state is very rural, and it's really tough to get access to resources because of the geographic distance. So if you're kind of thinking about the future here, what are you what are you seeing now for the next thirty years? Of uh, first of all, are people adopting today? 
the the things that you're you're saying within your framework of doing more behavioral coaching, getting away from the evolution of stock picking or or stock uh, suggesting, and doing more of the coaching work. And then, what do you think thirty years going forward? As you you mentioned this word robo advice, which is basically computer algorithms doing some of this work. What do you think is going to happen? And and I'm I'm using the main lens lens because of how real it is to us and how it's even more exasperated, I think, than the national trend. So, what would be your response there? Certainly. So it sounds like you're saying uh, increased demand. Yeah. Which we would absolutely agree with. I mean, people, I think people just, life's complicated. You know, the modern world's really complicated. The financial system's complicated. Uh, planning, taxes, you name it. Things are just, you know, everything seems to be getting more and more complicated. Uh, so there's more and more demand for it. To counter the other side of that equation is supply. I certainly agree with that. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a very particular demographic in financial advice, and they're probably not going to be in the business in 10 years uh, right. in large. I mean, you can, you can Google. It. I mean, you see it in trade publications. I mean, you know, a material percentage of our entire industry is retiring or exiting the industry every year. That said, uh, and I'll, dr- I'll address the kind of geographic part of it secondarily, but that said, I mean, I've seen on the education side, there are tons of universities really investing in financial planning curriculum. And, uh, you know, the CFP board has done a really good job of kind of integrating into some of those programs and really kind of producing uh, certified financial planners at an, at an earlier uh, rate. Um, actually, this, this conference that I was at earlier this week from the CFA Society of Philadelphia, the new CEO of the CFA Institute, so the global CEO. Institute was the keynote speaker, and the, the whole conference theme was uh, challenges facing advisors, and it was the future of wealth management. And even she said, like, they know that, you know, whereas in the past, the glamour jobs of finance, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily where the money is per se, but kind of where people wanted to be, where the meaningful, fulfilling work was, was kind of on the institutional side, was in the hedge fund side. You know, we had talked earlier about, you know, there's still kind of that cultural attraction for a certain type to Wall Street and yes. investment banking yes. and, you know, the hedge funds and things. But, you know, I think when you look at the younger generations coming up, the millennials, the Gen Zs, certainly, you know, they're not willing to necessarily work just for a big paycheck, mm-hmm. right? I think people are looking for really meaningful work. And I think that financial advice is, is about as meaningful as it gets. It's also an incredibly, you know, I'm not just patting you on the back there, but it's an incredibly demanding job in that, you know, you have to be really good people, people, mm-hmm. and you have to understand that psychology and understand how to interact with others and have a high level of emotional intelligence. But you have to be hyper competent on taxes and investments and all this numerical data and things. So in my mind, I think that, you know, while right now the numbers may look like, hey, there's a ton of advisors retiring, there's going to be more demand for it and not enough supply, you know, the, actually the biggest cohort of American demographics is actually Gen Z. Yeah. It's so, the, you know, if yeah. you think if you think the baby boomers are a big generation, I mean, most <laughs> of them had two or three kids. Yes. And there's just this tsunami of people who are looking for meaningful work that's diverse work, that's uh, that, that's flexible, and that's importantly auto- immune to automation. Right? I think a lot of people, and you know, I'm sure coming from a rural area, it's probably hit your area uh, probably even harder than most. Is yeah. that you know people are looking for something that's immune to automation, and I believe financial advice is one of those things. And it's you know, so I'm I'm incredibly bullish on the future. If I had children. Uh, that we're looking to, you know, get into the industry, I would absolutely tell them to go into financial advice over probably any other part of the industry. And and I, I think really to to sum up a lot of the research you just had and to that to your, the answer to that question is look at if I think if advisors are focusing in on the things that you have outlined here with your team, then well you can kind of see where the industry starts changing the the viewpoint on them 
right? Is is the public, I think, starts looking at them as a high trust industry instead of a low trust industry. Because right. if you're if you're mm-hmm. if you're there to, you know, pick stocks and you're less emotionally connected to your clients, and you, while all while you're you're driving your high end luxury sedan and dressing in in a certain way. It, you can see where they're 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 getting skeptical about that relationship, and and where you go, hey, if you start focusing on the right things, making material and impactful uh, work with with those people, and you're doing life changing things with them, and that's all thing they can talk about, and they have high trust. And if more people are doing it, then all of a sudden, then more and more people are going to go, that's the work I want to do, not right. the stuff that just enriches me, and it doesn't really matter what else happens to my clients. So yeah. I, I think that, that from my end is is kind of what I, I was thinking too. But Mike, I want to I want to do a, a wrap up question here, and because I really appreciate you coming on the the show, and mm-hmm. and this is just a fantastic conversation to have because I again I, to hear your perspective in the the national realm, especially at, at such a, a firm like Vanguard, who we hold in a really high esteem and regard. I but I want to ask from your side, obviously you're a ways from retirement, but as you are researching and thinking, and and you're, you your spouse as you're approaching this yourself how do, what sort of things would you be thinking about would be retirement success for you what because uh, of course you're hearing stories you're hearing us so you're hearing um kind of how how things are going what would stretch goals things that you always wanted to do what what would a successful retirement look like for you yeah it's interesting and we you know i'll give i'll give actually a couple personal examples because myself and my spouse have both seen this happen with our own parents and so my father retired what five six about six years ago or so now and he was a he was a new jersey state trooper mm-hmm. uh for 25 years and i mean he went into the he went into the uh police academy at a pretty young age so he retired fairly early with a pension and you know i think the average person would say yeah i would love to retire in my late 40s or early 50s and get a paycheck for life and not have to do anything yeah but with like six months before he even retired, I think he was bored even thinking about it. <laughs> so he started his own business, and he's a private investigator now. Nice. And right. You know what? I, I, he works probably, although it's more episodic, I bet you he probably works harder, maybe even more hours than he ever did before, and he's never been happier. Yeah. Being his own boss, and I think I have a lot of that DNA in me too, where I just, you know, I can't even take more than two days off of work if I don't have something to do, or I'll just sit there and drive myself and my wife crazy. <laughs> you know, with my wife, so her her father was a minister in South Carolina and he retired partially. He still does a little bit, you know, he's pretty involved in the community. Um, but similarly, and especially for something like him, he's incredibly extroverted. Um, just like loves talking, loves meeting people, loves making connections. And so, uh, my wife and I actually helped him launch a business. And so he's in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, we helped him launch a business called Meet Greenville Yours, where he mm. actually does, uh, relocation consulting effectively. So he works with realtors. He works with individuals who are looking to move to the city, which is a, which is one of the fastest growing cities in the whole United States. Uh, Lots of big employers there, so he'll work with employers who, you know, will send their potential prospects to him, and he'll take them around the town, show them the neighborhoods, connect them with the right people, you know, kind of serve as a relocation resource for them. Hmm. And so when I think about myself, I think that both of us will probably be probably be like that uh, as well, and I don't think we'll be able to sit still. And I, I'm, you know, I think we're really fortunate to have seen it happen to our family and not get to that point where right. it's kind of like we just retire. And and I've heard this from advisors before, actually. You know, this is something that we could never quantify in a million years, and I wouldn't even try. But, you know, a lot of advisors uh, will say, hey, you know, part of their value is helping clients figure that out. Like, Mm. you know, understanding, all right, we saved all this money. We did everything right. You made it to retirement. Why aren't you happier? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because you're you're foregoing happiness. We need to to find you. We need to find you purpose. 
in retirement. So me personally, um, I'm I'm a huge motorhead. I grew up working on cars with my dad in our spare time and motorcycles and things like that. I still do it. I drive my wife nuts. Um, you know, I'm always looking for a good deal in a car I can fix up and maybe sell or you know keep for a year or two and probably uh, you know probably have some some nicer things that I otherwise would would been able to if I didn't have the uh, the blood, sweat, and tears into them. So I've you know even even you know less I would hope less than halfway through my career I've already started thinking about what might that be. Nice. Right? Would it be some kind of automotive business, whether it's trading or you know mm. own a shop or a, a club? I have no idea. The world will probably look very different. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it's not all electric cars by then. Uh, <laughs> there, there'll always be know, something. For, that, guess, yeah, there'll always I guess be. For the, I guess for the for environment, it would probably be good if it was. But you yeah. know, I, I like them loud, so <laughs> that would be nice. You know, my uh, my weird personal retirement goal. Well, well, Mike, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much uh, for lending your expertise and sharing some of your findings. Again, uh, as we kind of expressed to you, it's been personally meaningful to us. Um, you've helped shape our firm uh, with with things that you've come up with. So um, I, I, we really just can't thank you enough for just coming on and, uh, and sharing the insight. Thanks. Oh, the pleasure has absolutely been all mine. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm just uh, appreciative of um, you know just having me on and, and your relationship. I know Kelly speaks the world of, of you and your firm, and hopefully I'll get to uh, get up there and meet you guys in person uh, in the summer. We will buy you the lobster roll or two or three whenever we see you. <laughs> Happy to do it. Love it. Very good. All right. Take care. So it was really great having Mike on the the podcast today, right? Is in terms of Vanguard, in in again hearing a little bit about Vanguard, but you know personally, I've been a, a very big Vanguard fan, and uh, I think the word uh, the fanboy word out there is a Boglehead, right? So <laughs> so Jack Bogle was the was the founder of Vanguard, and there's kind of this term of of people that are endeared to Vanguard as being called Bogleheads. So I've kind of been there as this attraction to uh, again low cost investing is that you know keeping more of your own money so that it compounds more. Over time is a very important investment to yeah, have, yeah. right? And and that's something where you know we're reading their research over the years and having a relationship with with Vanguard in lots of different realms. It's it's always great to hear what they're saying, what they're seeing nationally, so that we can then apply it not only to our own practice but also in terms of what we see in the state of Maine. Right? right. Is, again, there's a lot of unique things that are happening in Maine, and and there's needs that are maybe a little more specific, um, and we want to make sure that, hey, we can apply national research and bring it locally. But in terms of uh, the podcast today, Curtis, what did you take away from today's show? So, you know, I was really excited to, to have this conversation with Mike and specifically focus it around the advisor's alpha piece. You know, as we've mentioned, uh, and you've mentioned, Ben, that that's kind of a a piece of our firm here and and how we try to do things and that it goes back with me even to you know joining guidance point in march you know you and i had a lot of good conversations about that and you know how the goal if you will of the firm for the firm to or not only just the firm for us and how we interact with our clients and that was something that you know is really important to me and it clearly stuck out to me and and here i am um mm-hmm. working with guidance point um but no it was great to 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 talk with mike and hear you know, the, the statistics behind it and some of the methodology that they've found. And, and really the concept of high trust, right? Is, you know, he mentioned that um, in, in a part of the conversation today is that not only that clients trust you, right? That they like you and and, and they have a level of trust, mm-hmm. but this level of, uh, or this concept of how do I get a level of high trust with our clients? And I think the only way to do that, and I know we talked about this with Charlie and we talked about this with core values. Yeah. And is to really, I think, 
the more you can express that you care. And he, had, he made the point about asking really great questions, yep. right? And that, that someone's asking really good questions and they're thinking about me in a way that I've never really thought about myself. Right. That's, that's what's going to be impactful to people and, and really drive change in their life to better what they're doing, to better their relationships with their, with their family, to better their experiencing of life and to, to be able to change their lens on things. Yeah. And, and I'm not trying to go too, too lofty of a life goal here, <laughs> but why is that personally rewarding to me is when, first of all, it's, it's personally haunting to me when I'm hearing people really struggle in their life. Yeah. And they're, they're talking about these things because I've asked questions about, again, like their level of satisfaction in life and what, what's bothering them. And I'm thinking about them for quite a while. That, mm-hmm. That's really haunting and bothering when you're seeing somebody in a state of pain and you, you're able to help them. But then also then you see them through it and to see that they were here and now they're there. Um, that's really impactful. For me, uh, I would say that, look, I, I really got a lot out of in terms of the national side of it, in terms of the uh, where are where our advisors, where were they? Where have they been and where has that changed over the last 20 years? Yeah. To where is it going? Mm-hmm. And one thing that I, I don't want to take lightly here is there's a lot of functions that advisors do today that, that Mike talked about as Advisors Alpha that might be replaced by by algorithms and robots. Yeah. Right? And yeah. we're seeing it. You go to McDonald's and you order, you know, your your meal and and it's through a kiosk, right? Yeah. There, there's a lot of work that can be done by robots. But the part that can't be done is is this one-on-one human interaction. Yeah, the, the right? relationships. That, that's never going to get replaced. So yeah. there might be technical things and operational things that we do that we can get more efficient with by using more technology. And that's what he's talking about. And that's what we've been doing with Guidance Point is using more technology mm-hmm. to spend more time with our clients. Well, I'll say because the end game is it, it betters that relationship. That's right. More time to spend with our clients. And the only way to get to know people better is to spend time with them. Yep. So the more time you're spending with your clients, the better you are the better you know them, the better job you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And that is our stress point every day is efficiency so that we can spend more time with our clients having these conversations and impacting their lives. So I like that he kind of emphasized that back he to did, us yeah. and he reverberated yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and then going forward, that's going to be even more of a theme. So uh, again, it was a, it was a great conversation to hear. Again, uh, hopefully you out there listening to this, that you're able to kind of take away some of this. Hey, if I'm looking, if maybe I don't have an advisor today and I'm looking for one of, you, you might not pick us and that's certainly okay. Yeah. Um, you know, you can, there's a lot of choices out there, but if you're going to interview somebody and really think through the impact that they're going to make on you, uh, hopefully this research helps you with that. And what we want to offer to you is um, this is going to be uh, on our blog. So it'll be blog.guidancepointllc.com and it's going to be episode 12. So it's backslash 12. 12 yeah. And there you can see, so we we highlighted this research, but you want to read it. We, we actually urge you to read it. This is, it was, as you heard, very impactful to us, but read it. We're going to have more research um, that uh, that Mike and his team has put out and, and, and link it there so you can go and read it this on your own. Yeah. So as you're finding your advisor and that personal relationship with you, hopefully this helps you with interviewing. It helps you find that match. Again, this is a little bit of match.com thing going Good, on. Yeah. You got to find that right person for you. And and that's uh, something what we we are really passionate about is we think you should go find that person for you. So mm-hmm. thank you for listening. Uh, appreciate you tuning in and we'll catch you next time. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. 
While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisor's mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.